You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. My guest on the pod today is Jeremy Utley, who is the Director of Executive Education at Stanford School, D-School, and an adjunct professor at the Stanford School of Engineering. He is the co-author with Perry Claibon of the book Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can't be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Jeremy Utley, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kelly. Uh, I'm often intrigued with how people start their books, um, what they are trying to convey in the first sentence or two. And you and Perry start your book by saying, quote, you may be wondering if this book is intended for you. It is, end quote. So I'm pretty sure you won't know most of the people reading your book. Uh, so I'm wondering where the confidence comes from. Well, because I need it myself. And uh, I, I think that anytime you write something, you know, they say, write the book you want to read. Uh-huh. These are all things that I, one, needed to know much earlier in my career, and two, need to be reminded of often myself. And so, you know, we get taught a lot of things about what it takes to be smart or productive or efficient in the workplace. And to me, anybody who's picking up a business book for the purpose of innovation, for growing their business, et cetera, they've got a bunch of assumptions and there's a bunch of ideas about how that works just by virtue of them picking it up, right? The kind of person who's going to open this book, I already know they need it. Absolutely. Because I do. That's the point. I do too. Did you, at one point in your life, not think of yourself as a creative individual? Absolutely, I did. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. You know, I I was always very analytical. I always got top marks in my classes and 
uh, studied finance mostly because it came easily to me and because it didn't require a foreign language uh, in college, which I'm embarrassed to say. But I was always drawn to numbers. And I always, basically, I had the sense that work stinks. And that's why they call it work. And mm-hmm. But if you're good at it, then you got to do it. And for me, I was good at numbers. And the fact that it stunk didn't really enter into the equation because work's supposed to stink. And so there was no part of my life where creativity was a part of my identity. And my life got derailed a few years into that journey. But yeah, creativity was not a piece of my puzzle at all. Not a piece of my identity at all. So this is so funny because like I'm the opposite, right? I, I, my dad was in the entertainment industry. I was into music and theater and, and struggled yeah. in math and, and those kinds of classes. Uh-huh. Uh, and we know each other. We, we were very like-minded in terms of the things that we look at and explore now. We kind of yeah. ended up at the same place. Right. From a very different starting point. From a very yeah. different starting point, which also goes to prove the point. And mm. this has come up. This is like one of the very first podcasts I ever did was this like, trying to destroy the myth of the soul creative. Like, mm. like there, there's creative people, like in the advertising industry, I love this. Like right. we're gonna give it to the creatives right? as if there's some the depa- magic dude in the right. corner. The department, yeah, that department over there, right? Yeah. I mean, there's you, there are lots of those kind of um, false dichotomies in the world, right? There's creative businesses, non-creative businesses, and then there's creative departments and there's non-creative departments and there's creative people, non-creative people. All of that is a useless construct that doesn't actually help anyone be effective, but that's the predominant paradigm. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, I, I remember distinctly, I was in India working at a startup in 2008 and I'm running financial models. And I'm really good at a pivot table. I'm really good at a DCF calculation and all that stuff. That was my sweet spot. And yet there was a guy down the hall named Joe Mellon who was carving foam core models and then taking them into the slums of New Delhi. And he'd be gone for a couple of days. We're living together in Noida, just outside of Delhi. And he'd be gone for a couple of days. And he comes back. I go, Joe, where did you go? He's like, I was working with the people we're, we're trying to serve. Mm. And I started asking questions and he said, you know what? You're a D school guy. And I go, what's a D school guy? I thought that was a, you know, uh, he was insulting me. Yes, there was he goes, no, no, no. There's this thing at Stanford. Do you know about it? I didn't know. I had heard of it, but I didn't know much about it. I didn't assume it applied to me. He goes, you got to go check it out. You know, and that was in between years of business school. So when I went back to Stanford in the fall of 2008, for my second year of business school, I started taking elective courses at this D school because Joe recommended it. And it was, it was like a circus, you know I mean? For Uh me, I walked in there and it defied every rule I had for smart and productive. Mm. And yet it was incredibly rigorous. I did value rigor, but it was fun. And I had never experienced rigorous that I enjoyed Rigorous was always a bad thing. And all of a sudden I found myself, even though it's elective credits that I don't actually get grading units for, meaning I can just take it past fell. I found myself thinking about those projects more than I was my graded courses in the business school. I found myself curious about things. And I started realizing there's, there's this whole side of me that I've never tapped into. And that was when, as I kind of joked earlier, my life was really derailed. And I had, I would say my first true epiphany. I don't know. Probably I had some before. It's the first time I could go on record as saying, I didn't know that was in me. Like I had that Mm -hmm. moment. And, you know, I'm sure as an improviser, you've had those moments where you go, 
I didn't know that was in there, right? Sure. And I had never had moments like that before where in the middle of working in a collaborative environment with other people trying to solve a really challenging problem, I found myself marveling that something came out of me that I never knew was there. And that was like, I don't want to make a drug reference, you know, but it was some, it was like, whoa, I like yeah, that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Mine isn't the, 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 the mess is all something I always lived in. Mine actually was like, I made a big deal. I made a big mm. business deal. Mm. And I remember the guy who ran the corporate division was like, if I had to say who's the best salesman at second city, I would say you Kelly. And I'm like, oh. I never thought of myself as a business person, but, but indeed what I learned, what I ended up learning is, is really great business people are highly creative yes. because they, they look for the yes, they look for the solution. And you, Absolutely. you write something in the book, um, your quote, your brain never makes anything truly from scratch. Right. That's right. Re- it's a revolutionary concept, I, I, but, but it is absolutely true because when you're improvising, you're, you're drawing from real stuff that's there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's so important to realize that. I mean, you can think it's just semantic, right? But it's actually not. I mean, I have a student named Krish in one of my classes at Stanford who is very entrepreneurial. He's always trying to do stuff. And he came to me because I basically said that in a class called Transformative Design recently. I said, hey, guys, you know that ideas aren't made from scratch. They're made of component parts. You can think about the simplest way to think about an idea if you want to define idea is it's a connection. Yeah. Meaning your brain isn't coming up with something ex nihilo, as they say, right? It's connecting two part, two things you already know at, in an unexpected way, right? And it's when you realize it's a connection, then you, then that you can start to do something with that. You can seek out new connections, right? You can seek out new information. And Chris pulled me aside after class. He goes, you have no idea how liberating that is. Cause mm. I've been trying to come up with ideas and it, they're kind of nebulous. I don't know if I'm coming up with ideas, but when you told us the other day that ideas are connections, I can measure how many connections I'm making. I can know for sure. And I know what I'm doing. I didn't know what I was doing when I was trying to come up with ideas. And so to me, that language, and actually, I think that the researcher, his name is, uh, he's a Danish researcher, I believe. I can't remember his name. We can maybe link to it in the show notes mm-hmm. or something. But he's got a great study that he conducted where he trained some people in creative problem-solving methods. And then he trained others in creative problem-solving methods, but also the underlying neurology of creativity. And what he demonstrated was, thankfully for people like you and me, creative training does help. So that's yeah. good. We're, yeah. we're, we've got job security. Yeah. But furthermore, that if you understand the underlying neurology, namely that you're just making connections, you're far more creative than the people who just got creativity training, right? And so there's actually pragmatic implications to understanding that really simple thing. That this The simple quote that you quoted there, that your brain doesn't make anything from scratch. When you realize that, it's incredibly empowering and it actually does make you more creative when you realize, I don't have to start from nothing. There's a improv game uh, that the late great Jim Zulovic from Second City created. It's called the Jim Game. And what he would do is have a pad of paper and he'd come to the audience and there's four different uh, sections uh, that we're getting suggestions for. So it would be an occupation would be in one, uh, a movie title would be in another, uh, an era uh, would be another, and then sports teams. And then the Jim Game is... Uh, some person goes over that pad of paper and goes, okay, I want to see the Renaissance and the Chicago Cubs go. 
Yes. And, and it's, and, and now as we're talking, I'm realizing, oh, it is that in action. It's like you, right. you're, you've just been handed so much richness. Right. And, and it would seem when you're getting the gets, it feels terrifying to an audience member. And you're like, no, 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 no. Like you have well enough with those right. two things. Right. And those, the thing that's interesting is like, they're all in your, none of those things are like Renaissance isn't a new concept. You know it, you know, existentially, but the question is whether it's in close enough proximity to, I almost think about it like Lego connections or like magnetic tiles. When you get them close enough, you go, oh, that's cool, right? And there's something like that, that we know all this stuff. I mean, the example that I've been using lately, you know, we had a workshop last week at Stanford and I mentioned this, we're working with this company that, that does electric vehicles. We'll leave it at that. And they're working on autonomous and, you know, and one of the big challenges they face is what's called range anxiety. Meaning uh-huh. people are concerned about how far they're going to get on a charge. This sure. is well-known phenomenon, right? And they've got engineers working on solving that. Well, suppose with me for a moment, just use your imagination that an engineer who's been thinking about this problem of range anxiety goes to a coffee shop. And as she's sitting there, she overhears a couple of folks, they come in a military garb and she can't help but eavesdrop, which is a wonderful strategy. I actually blogged about that in, in inspired by your book, where you talked about some eavesdropping thing that became Rod, yeah. Rod Logovich, you know. Or Rod Logovich superstar, yeah. Yeah, exactly, which I love that, that mm-hmm. anecdote. Um, but, you know, she's eavesdropping and she overhears these military folks talking about jet fighters. They got s- small fuel tanks, but when they're in combat, they don't, they don't go back to the base. They do mid-air refueling, right? Yeah. And all of a sudden, we both had this collective hallucination. It's called an idea, right? Mm-hmm. Just like the engineer, she's thinking about range anxiety and she's thinking about mid-air refueling. And she goes, oh, just like every listener here did, right? I know how to solve the range anxiety problem. The thing is, both of those things we, uh, we know existentially, right? Range anxiety. If I, when I said it, you go, Oh yeah, I, I've heard about that or I know what that is. Mid air refueling. Oh, I've seen Top Gun. I know what that is. Right. But when we bring those things in close enough proximity, the brain just snaps them together in this moment of it's an idea. And that's effectively in the gym game. I love that. That's what's happening. You're bringing yeah. Lego pieces close enough together and just seeing, oh, let's try on a connection, right? Yeah. 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 And, and, and comedy, if you, uh, you know, uh, take it down to its elemental, uh, stuff is surprise. Yes. Yes. So, so that that's and and improvisation comedy being different, but, but there's a reason we use the one to get to the other. Yes. Um, so this is a good, good place to talk about some numbers. Okay, uh, and great. our mutual friend, Bob Sutton has some numbers that he throws around with regard to um, getting to a quality idea. Can you yes. share those with us? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is one of the few data points that when we share it, it just consistently astounds people. So if yep. you were to ask an audience, how many ideas do you need to have a good idea? Line, the great Linus Pauling, the only person to win an individual Nobel prize once said, Simply when, when asked, how did you do it? I mean, he almost won a third Nobel prize. He was neck and neck with Watson and Crick in discovering the double helix structure of DNA. And he, if he had done that, he would have had a third Nobel prize. Um, but anyway, somebody asked Pauling, Hey, how do you come up with so many great ideas? And his answer was simply said, to have a good idea, you need to have lots of ideas. Mm-hmm. And the question is, well, how many is a lot? Very simply. And Bob's research really helped us understand what a lot is. And if you ask an audience, how many ideas do you need to have a good idea? Most of the time, the mode answer is 20. That's what I was going to say. You know, somebody who's really aggressive will say 200, right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And somebody who's just wanting to be provocative will say something like 10,000, right? Which is great because we need that person to average things out. Most people, it's between 20 and 200. And what Bob's research, Bob did this with his uh, PhD student, Anthony Harganon. He did this longitudinal study of IDEO in the toy lab at IDEO. And, what, and he had a lot of raw data. And what he found was to get to two to three, what he called commercial successes, what Brendan Boyle, the head of the IDEO Play Lab, deemed legitimate commercial successes, you work backwards through the funnel. They had about 12 things that were commercially transacted around. So two or three of 12 became successful that were in the market. Well, to get to 12 things that they commercially transacted around, you work backwards, they needed about 200 or so prototypes. And then to get to the point where they had 200 prototypes, they needed 4,000 raw ideas. So if you just kind of chart the funnel, so to speak, you start with 4,000 ideas, you prototype about 200 of them, about 12 of them get in market and two or three of the ones that get to market are successful, Yeah, which which basically puts you at rough numbers, an idea ratio of somewhere around 2,000 to one. And for most people, that's multiple orders of magnitude more than they expect it to be. And and, uh, the second city creative process, so it's it's usually a 10 to 12 week process in which we're utilizing both the third act improv set as well as rehearsals during the day to generate ideas and ideas and ideas. That's roughly Mm. what it is. So so you will end up with maybe 18 to 24 pieces in a show and it's a combination of scenes, what we call blackouts, which are the little quickies, and then music uh, uh, pieces, and then a structured improv thing or whatever. Uh Um, We're trying, especially in the first four-week period, it is just relentless yes-anding to get to those ideas. And then there's the other thing that people don't understand, which is it requires then a lot of discipline no uh, to to, to whittle down, just like you were saying with a funnel. And it made me think, so I'm I'm interviewing this ex-Hindu monk named Don Dapani. He's an entrepreneur now. Okay. And he has a book on the power of focus. This thing is blowing me away. Okay. Uh, but it's very similar to when you talk about, you say in the book, quote, the way you invest your limited time has an enormous impact on your creative output, end quote. Don Dapani is, is basically saying, you want to live an effective life. You need to understand focus, where you're putting your attention. He yeah. talks about my, understanding that mind, he's, mind is mansion. Mind is these many rooms. And then mm. awareness is the thing you control. And that awareness is like a glowing orb that goes into these variety of rooms. Sure, sure. And it's lovely metaphor that I like. I started this yesterday that I've been taking with me where where I find my attention shifting, wandering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And 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 this. So there's there's a kind of loose discipline around allowing a bunch of different ideas, but it is a discipline. Right, right. Well, I mean, you just going back to the volume thing, I can't help but be reminded of SNL when you say yeah. you're a process at second city. And what's funny to me about SNL is I can hardly bear it just because the, even what makes it on air, there's so little yield, you yes. know, like for every skit you like, it takes 10 skits before you get one that really is funny. Right. Yep. And 10 that are really funny before one goes viral. Well, how many did the, you know, go backwards in that funnel? I think we'd see it. I mean, we've seen this phenomenon play out if you look at pharmaceuticals, it takes like 10,000 molecular compounds to get to one viable right. therapy, right? You look at James Dyson and the bagless vacuum. It took him like 5,000 prototypes. There's lots of examples of this volume. And the chal- or the thing that's fascinating to me is if someone were to really internalize the notion that 
the only way to good I- to get a good idea is to get a lot of ideas. Yep. It would revolutionize how they approach their working day and their output, right? Absolutely. But the deep-seated orientation is, I just need one good idea. I just need a idea. We're always thinking in terms of singular. I mean, I go around the world teaching this stuff. One of the, this, and this is true universally. It doesn't matter what language, culture. When people ask me, hey, what do you do for a living? I say, I help people come up with ideas. Hmm. I always get the same response. Do you know what it is? If you had to no. guess. I get it in Asia. I get it in South America. I get it in Europe. I say, I help people come up with ideas everywhere. The response is, how do you come up with a good idea? Oh, I go, wait, who said anything about good? Right, right, right. And who said anything about a, but yeah. we can't, you know, pe- the, the autonomous response of the human to the notion of ideas is a good. Sure. And, you know, I joke with people, you know, you say you're an ideas guy. You're not, you're an idea guy. Yeah. You love idea. You actually hate idea. The notion of the ambiguity inherent in multiple, it's almost, it's, you know, it's, it's one of the most cognitively distressing phenomena we experience when we, when things are ambiguous and coming up with multiple ideas is ambiguous, right? So what do we do? We just, the first good one we get, we go, oh, great. We got it. Let's move on. Yeah. I mean, we get brought into all these businesses to supposedly unlock creativity inside Mm -hmm. of individuals and teams. And what we're doing is, and we don't call it this, we're having them play games. Yes. (laughs) And we're having them play games that will get them out of their judgment brain, because you can't be creative when you're in judgment of yourself or others. Right. We get them out of their fear brain of looking silly, because like a a new idea is inherently going to look silly because you never saw it before in that particular design. And you actually have a study uh, that we were involved in, uh, the Creative Cliff Illusion that Brian Lucas and Lauren Nordgren uh, worked on. Um, One of my and, favorite studies. Yeah, it was great. And it was, it was really fun to work on that. Um, can you talk about what, what, what that said? Absolutely. I mean, you sounds like you could probably tell me better than I could tell you. But yeah, the, that's not the, my notes. The short, of it, the short of it to me, there's a couple of interesting yeah. implications. The One, the basic notion is the general expectation of an individual is that there will be a cliff in their creativity over time. Meaning if you map over time, the creative output, most people's expectations is it goes down. And that's, that's the notion of the creative cliff. The reason that they titled the paper, the creative cliff illusion is because they're actually, that's not true. Our creativity doesn't degrade over time. In fact, it has the potential to increase and be a creative ramp. To me, the most fascinating piece of that paper, and again, I probably know it less well than you do and certainly than the authors do, but the most fascinating piece of it to me was when they looked at the greatest predictor of what determined the overall quality of the set of output, it was the innovator's expectation of when good ideas would come. Yes. And for every bit more, they agreed with the statement I expect my good ideas to come early. That was exactly inversely proportional to the quality of their ideas. Meaning the more someone expected good ideas to come early, the less good ideas they had. But the more someone expected conversely to for good ideas to continue to come, the more their ideas were actually high quality. And so to me, it's like, it's, it's like, I, I wish I could meet them. If you know them, I'd love to meet them because I think it's such a fascinating piece of research with such rich implications for the practice of creative work. And it's similar to a study that uh, Ayelet Fishbach did here uh, around uh, 
measuring people when, when you tell. So half the group was told um, this is going to be uncomfortable, um, uh, but that's OK. And the other okay. group wasn't told anything. And the people who were told it was uncomfortable uh, uh, reported back far greater uh, success with regard to the what, what they were really? what they were creating in the moment. I didn't. I'm not familiar with that. I'd love yeah, to dig into it. It's great. I'll send it to you. But it's it's this. It's just this idea of oh, if we're just sort of prompted that that this is things going to be a thing, it changes the game. And, and I think it's part and parcel with everything that's in your book, which is like this isn't really complicated. It's actually right. the it's it's like lighting lots of stuff. You're like we're subtracting all the junk that's been put in front of us. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, it's, it's so, I mean, to me, ultimately the way I think about it is it gets down to this idea of practice and having an, having a mindset of there's, there's countless opportunities for practicing my creative muscle. If you only see creativity as applicable to the creative department or the creative company or the, or, you know, a new product or new service, then you go, well, how many times am I responsible for generating a new product idea? Very rarely. Right. But I like to tell the story of my little sister and she's given me permission to tell this story, but she was a volleyball player in high school. She's eight years younger than me. I could send you a photo if you'd like. She's great. Um, and she, uh, she had this habit whenever we went to the grocery store, my mom would say, Rachel, would you grab a jug of milk? She'd open the refrigerator and you already know what she did, right? She grabbed the jug of milk and what would she do? Drink from it? No, no. She'd do two or three curls. Oh, before she curls. She Why? Because she's in the training mindset, right? Oh, that's interesting. To, to an athlete, every gallon of milk is a dumbbell, right? Wow. And to, to someone who said creativity is also a muscle I flex, then it's like, what should I title this subject line? Why don't I do 10 curls, right? Mm-hmm. I can do 10 curls and that's effectively like doing a dumbbell curl with a gallon of milk, right? But it's not a new product. You know, imagine if Rachel, my sister had said, the only time I can develop my skills as a volleyball player is on the court when my coach is there. Yeah. Well, all right. of a sudden, the total applicability of her volleyball skills is like a fraction of her life, but that's not how it works. And the same is true with our creative practice. When we, if we say it's only relevant when I'm on a creative team with a creative brief trying to innovate, then we go, well, of course we're, of course we're rusty. Of course we're sore. Most people are asked to participate in the sprint and they've never warmed up. They've never stretched. They've not done mm-hmm. any training. And then they go, I wonder why the sprint wasn't effective. It's like, well, if I asked you to leave your microphone right now and do a 400 meter dash around the block, like, how would that go? I'd be very sweaty. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you probably pull a hammy, right? I'd pull and a hammy the totally. Sa- the same is true um, with creative work. And there's a, when you get into that mindset of there's a discipline, I want to, I want to build this muscle and I want to look for opportunities to build it. Then when you get in the sprint moment, you actually have the opportunity to your, I love your, your phrase there. I wrote that down, get out of the judgment brain and fear brain. There are simple things you can do to rewire your orientation towards that judgment and fear. And the preparation starts long before the moment it's actually needed. Well, and this is, this is again, why so many people who are at a crossroads in their life end up in improv classes. I mean, mm. it is the island of misfit toys here and always has been. Uh, but what they end up doing is like, they're not going to get onto Saturday Night Live. They're probably not going to end up on a second C stage. But what they're what they're practicing in the room um, are those things of attention, make your partner look good, yeah, this, yeah. This, this pro-social group work. Um, yes. and, and there's another thing you point to in the land of ideas. is like, no, you do not do this alone. Right. 
That's and, right. And, and it's a team sport. Every, every, everyone should be involved. The world yeah. is involved. And, and great, great comics are getting material every day because they're just paying attention to their interactions. Yeah, they're living life. I love the story of um, my, my mentor, David Kelly at the D school. He tells a story about he was good friends with Robin Williams. And he said, yeah. Robin Williams always had a legal pad with him. Mm-hmm. He said, wherever they were, he's writing stuff down. He said, many times I'd be at a, you know, at a comedy club and stuff that from our conversation in the day is in his set. Yep. But to, it's like, you know, they say to a, to a writer, everything's grist for the mill, mm-hmm. you know, to a comedian, I think it's probably similar. And I think to an innovator, again, getting back to this idea of connections, are you in the habit of gathering Legos, gathering inputs, and then you can try on all sorts of unexpected connections, but it's, it starts with that intentionality. I, Williams and probably many other, you know, sorts of folks in many other disciplines. David Byrne carries a dictaphone around, right? Yeah. But folks who are in the habit of gathering input are way more likely to have a creative output. And mm-hmm. for a lot of, and that's, that's what we call inspiration, or that's what I've kind of dubbed the, the discipline pursuit of input is inspiration. And for business people, the unfortunate thing is most business people, if they hear the word inspiration, they think cheesy poster on the hallway that says courage or teamwork. They don't think habit. They don't, you know, my wife, I'll never forget. I was in, I was before I was in business school, when I was practicing finance, building spreadsheets every day, I met my wife. She's a fashion designer. Mm-hmm. She'd go to Paris or New York on inspo trips, right? She'd make mood boards. And I'm like, how I can't encode that into a spreadsheet. I have no value for that whatsoever, right? And I just thought, this is a boondoggle. You want macarons, so you're going to Paris, right? Mm-hmm. But for her, it fed, and I started seeing over time, it really did feed her that practice of gathering input. And of course, my time at the D school reinforced this notion of, I mean, we we really value other people as a source of input, not only collaborators, but also customers, users, et cetera. And Fast forward, you know, 10 years into my journey, 12 years into my journey, I'm teaching a class with a hip hop artist named Lecrae. Hmm. And this is a couple uh, falls ago. And we're giving our students an assignment to go get inspiration in the world, just like my wife does, you know, just yep. like I had learned to do at the D school. And I saw, as it were, almost the, the, like the look of terror on people's faces or just judgment, or I don't know what it was like, what are you asking us to do in this moment? Because a bunch of MBAs and lawyers and doctors and engineers. And I just said, Lecrae, how do you think about inspiration as an artist? And he said, as, as only a hip hop artist could, he just dropped a bar. He said, inspiration's a discipline. And I realized in that moment, it's not even on the radar of no. any of these people, let alone a routine, right? Yeah. And so to me, part of the goal of this book, and I don't even know if we do a good job of it, but is actually putting inspiration on the radar. Most people, when they think about creativity and innovation, they think in terms of output. Yeah. For us, what we know is it's actually all about input. And so, and if you become aware of input as the critical fuel that, that, that flows through the funnel, then, and then you go, well, how can I seek new input? What are the, what are the levers I can pull? All of a sudden your flow dramatically increases. Well, this is another place where uh, uh, our both our modern metaphors and our definitions uh, get muddied. So, you know, people conflate uh, creativity and innovation. I talk about this all the time. Mm. And like, you can have creativity with no innovation. You cannot have innovation without creativity. Yes, uh, I agree. And, and but people don't when they want them to innovate, they don't recognize that they need to make space for mess and failure. 
Right. Um, and, and one of the stories you have a chapter called make the world your lab, where you tell different stories of people who, who yeah. brought, brought these ideas into the world. And the one that I'd love you to talk about was what BJ's restaurants did with regard to some of their, oh, isn't that great? Yeah, Isn't that great. great? Well, and I think the, the ultimate purpose there, just, just to back out to the point really quick, yep. the point is, why do we run experiments? Why do we do things in a scrappy, quick manner? We, we're trying to answer the question, is this a good idea? So if you have the question, is it a good idea? The answer is not, what do I think of it? The answer is, what does the market think? Or how can I get input from others, right? So that's kind of the broad principle. What BJ's did, their organization we've had a longstanding relationship with, they had this idea of putting basically a uh, a business card of an associate in a delivery bag. And the reason is because of third-party delivery services and things like that, they're losing the direct connection with the customer. So a good chunk of their to-go orders aren't coming from customers. They're coming through the DoorDashes and the Uber Eats of the world. And so, you know, if, if Kelly, if you place an order for a salad and you don't get your ranch, who do you reach out to? Right. You call, you call the restaurant. They go, well, I mean, we put the ranch in the bag, right? You call DoorDash, they throw the restaurant under the bus and they go, well, they didn't give it to us. Right. And so, and DoorDash can, by the way, give you a gift card, but then who does that endear you to? Exactly. Mm-hmm. DoorDash. Not, and you think, oh, I'm not going to order from BJ's again, but DoorDash is great. They're hooking me up, right? So BJ's goes, we need to establish this direct connection, right? So they had this idea, or they had the idea, what if we put a card in there that just said, I'm Jeremy, I packed your order. If there's anything missing, send me a text and I'll get it to you. A way to establish a direct connection between basically the kitchen and the customer. So they get all excited, you know, and, and we were there with a group of senior leaders trying to innovate, trying to do stuff in the restaurant. And we said, okay, let's just do it. And let's see what happens. Let's let the data speak for itself. Right. And over the course of the night, we dropped something like 20, 25 cards into go bags. And then we're just kind of waiting on pins and needles. How's it going to go? Well, the next morning we come in and almost like Eeyore, you know, like you see the woman who's responsible for this, she comes in and we go, how'd it go? And she goes, it didn't work. We go, well, what do you mean it didn't work? She goes, nobody texted me, you know? And so if you pause yeah. there, is it a good idea? Yes. You know, like, what, what, so. what they all would say is if zero for 23 people reach out, categorically, no, move on. Not a good idea, right? I mean, exactly. I obviously <laughs> I obviously think it's a great idea. But what we did, and, and a really good thing to be aware of is sometimes your experiment is flawed. That's and right. if the goal of an experiment is to tell you if it's a good idea, your first thing to ask is not, did the experiment say this is a good idea? But rather to say, was this experiment designed in a way that it could tell us whether it was a good idea? And what we found as we kind of dug in, as we interrogated the experiments a little bit there at BJ's was, they had like five people checking the bags. I mean, this is like, this is more oversight in a kitchen than any restaurant has right. ever had, right? And you mm-hmm. know what that means? Every order was perfect. So every order that goes out's perfect. Is it a surprise that no one called to say their order was messed up? No, no, of course they didn't, right? And then the question is, oh, and what's fascinating there in a business context is, okay, if we want to see if people call, what should we do? Actually, and, and one of the heads of marketing said, you know what we should do? We should mess up all the orders. And by the way, that is the right answer, right? The way is, to learn is someone, anyone's going to think you should do. Right. But operations folks, you know what they go? No way. We can't mess up an order, right? Well, then there's no way to learn whether you establish a connection with the customer, right? So it's this, which is to say, it's, it's not that it's straightforward. It's really tough to figure out 
But the fact that an experiment doesn't go well may not tell you anything about the underlying idea. It may tell you a lot about your willingness to make really great experiments. And what they learn in that case is we're not willing to do what it takes to, to run a really high quality experiment here. And that's something that they got to grapple with, right? And they got to figure out how they do that well. You know, this is one a thing I learned when I was, um, uh, this is 1989, 90. I, 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 start, I became the director of sales at Second City. I, they did, the position didn't exist. And so I was dealing with groups and, and we screwed up this group terribly. Um, uh-huh. And then I talked to the woman afterwards. I'm like, look, um, I recognize that this you, you're a regular customer and, and this got screwed. You bring a ton of people here. Um, I'm going to cop your next group. Um, is so, to get you to come back. And if it goes great, we'll see you back here and you can pay for your tickets. Um, uh, and she's like, okay. And she had a great time. And this was like now a lifelong customer. And wow. I was like, oh, getting it. If you get it wrong, apologize and get it right. You're in a better position than you were before. Absolutely. Absolutely. Service recovery is one of the best opportunities to make a lifelong customer. Um, I'm going to ask you in a second for uh, a yes and story, but before I do that, you write in the book, quote, creativity doesn't look creative when you're doing it, end quote. Um, I think that applies to everything we're talking about in part because it is so messy and uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's also, I think I learned from you even, or one of the legendary improvisers we've gotten to work with is Dan Klein, who's at Stanford. He's just, uh, He's an absolute pro. And one of the things that we've learned from him is the wrong objective is to be creative. The right objective is to be natural or to be obvious. And what he has said is if you get a diverse group of people together, what's obvious to you because of your life experience and perspective and all of your history, the thing that's obviously going to come to your mind is creative to me. And the thing that obviously, because how do we define creative? It's, it's novel in that sense. It's unexpected to my mind, right? And the thing that's obvious to me is likely to be creative to you. And by the way, if I say the thing that was obvious to you, you just think that we're both smart. So it's like, either you think that we're both smart or you think that I'm particularly smart, right? There's no loss when I say the thing that's obvious, but when in the context of a team, especially in a brainstorm or something, everybody thinks the goal is to be creative. I got to say the creative thing. And when you lower the bar to say, no, 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 the goal is to be obvious. Let's create an environment that's safe enough for everybody to say the first thing that comes to their mind, trusting that if we all say the first thing that comes to our mind, there's going to be this crazy kind of virtuous spiral where we end up where none of us expected before. And that's ultimately the goal is to get where none of us had imagined prior to being in the room. And most of the time, somebody leaves the room validated that my idea won, right? Mm-hmm. Which I would say is an abject failure in terms of creative output. The goal would be for everybody to go, how did we get there? Mm-hmm. I don't even know whose idea that was, right? But that takes this kind of blissful uh, unpossessiveness and low ego to enable others to contribute their obvious and to be willing to contribute my obvious in the service of the group output. I don't think I've ever talked to you about this guy before, but uh, uh, the Reverend Dr. Sam Wells, he's the vicar of St. Martin in the Fields, and he wrote a book called The Drama of Improvisation and Christian Ethics. Okay. And he talks about this idea in in improvisation and Christian ethics about uh, these behaviors becoming obvious. That that and then you you reflexively just do the right thing. Yes. Um. 
And when he took improv classes, he, he, it all gelled for him in terms of this, this, this sort of uh, group behavior that we hold each other accountable. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, and the, the thing is, you have to have, there has to be some language and there has to be some level setting. And that's why, that's why training or practice is so valuable because we're reinforcing behaviors that aren't common in the day to day of the business. You know, in the day to day of the business, we are critical. And by the way, sometimes it's really helpful to be critical. Sometimes it's really sure. helpful to be judgmental. But the question is, is it always helpful? And obviously the answer is right. no. But then the question is, well, do we have any language for telling one another when it's not helpful? And that's what the design process, that's mm-hmm. what improvisation really does is it gives people yeah. some signposting as to when, what kind of mindset is appropriate, what constitutes a genius contribution, right? And there are times where, you know, Arthur in the, in the back going, Hey, the numbers in the fourth column don't add up. That's a genius contribution. Thank you, Arthur. We sure. don't want our numbers to not add up, right? But if Arthur takes that same mindset, when I'm tossing out a crazy idea about a new seltzer water you know, infuser, then that shuts me down and it shuts the team down. And the same thing that was genius in one context is destructive in another context. And if you don't have any language for knowing when, what kind of mindset is appropriate, you default to the, to the status quo, which is going to be criticism. It's going to be judgment, et cetera. Yeah, I don't want you improvising on opening night. I want you doing the thing that we've got to script on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's great. I we so. joke. I don't want to see post-its in the cockpit. <laughs> I know. I don't want to see post-its in the cockpit. No post-its in the <laughs> cockpit. Just <laughs> land the plane, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I got my second city thing. You got your IDO thing. It's perfect. All right. Totally. Uh, we always end the podcast with asking our guests for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? I have more yes and stories than you could possibly imagine. I'll just give you one from this morning in my life. I, uh, I had a, a business partner that I needed to convey a message to. And I was thinking about how do I do that appropriately? And I actually crafted an entire email. By the way, I'm going to, in my mind, I need to make breakfast. I need to be on a call, et cetera, et cetera. But something in me said, ask your wife what she thinks about this. And what I really wanted was just like a quick sign off. Like, yeah, just like double check me, gut check, you know, great. We're good to go. And she, as she read the email, her face, I could tell (laughs) I'm not going to be able to make breakfast. (laughs) And she had more fundamental concerns about the way I had framed my message. And I started to get defensive. um, But then I thought, you know what? There's a reason that I felt compelled to ask her. I should probably listen. And I just handed over the phone and I said, if you were going to write this message, what would you say? And Mm -hmm. she helped me compose a message that in hindsight, it's a message I'll be proud of for the next 10 years. Yeah. I don't know that I would have been, I would have felt, you know, self-righteous for the next 12 hours, perhaps uh, with the message I had composed. I think hers stands the test of time in a much better way. Yeah. Well, this is the, this is the importance of diversity on teams, the importance of taking the pause, yes. uh, the, the importance of what belongs in an email. Like, this is another thing. Uh, um, how much training did you get on email? Exactly. Exactly. None of us did. And it's no. the primary way we communicate in business. And literally, not only are we, we are not trained, like even now, I've had a couple of people on the podcast who have all these hacks that I'm like, oh, this is brilliant. Like, like, I, I wish I had known this like 
years ago. Why isn't this common knowledge, right? Yeah. Still, still, still doesn't happen. The, uh, the book is uh, co-written with, uh, Perry Claybon and it's called Idea Flow, the only business metric that matters. Jeremy, thank you for coming on the podcast. I am so glad. I wanted to mention that I made a free resource available on the website for listeners of the podcast. If they yeah. want to check it out, Perry and I wrote a short ebook called How to Think Like Jeff Bezos and Steve Jobs. And if you go to ideaflow.design, uh, uh, folks who listen today can go and download that ebook for free. It's a little bit awesome. of a compilation of things we've observed from those breakthrough thinkers in our research. All right. Thanks, thanks again for coming on the pod. Absolutely. The Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com. Survive